coming up in this episode. I remember when I met my now husband, he um, you know, was drinking, he started drinking healthy kombucha when he met me, but it felt very much in line with his CrossFit lifestyle at the time. And so in terms of, you know, for us, learning that was great just from an occasion type um, understanding with our consumer for the betterment of their diet um, and not so much in a clinical way um, following a nutritionist recommendation. And we, we primarily would want to stay out of that uh, because at the heart of it, it's delicious, makes you feel good, and a lot of people can partake in this. But at the same time, it does fall within a lot of diets, a lot of um, lifestyles, um, and really is a great replacement for something high sugary that people are indulging in and they want to take out of their life. So you want to be able to be that for those. Yeah, it makes sense for me. Again, like a lot of our audience are on a low carb ketogenic diet. And I think one of the hard things is when you're trying to do a workout, uh, having a little bit of that carbohydrate pump right before is, is helpful. And something like uh, kombucha is kind of a nice balance where you get some yummy hydration and you have a little bit of carbohydrate without taking like a Gatorade, another kind of sugar bomb. It's kind of a nice balance. So I could definitely see kind of the CrossFit community, which overlaps quite heavily with the low carb community, being an early adopter there. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Hey everyone, this is Jeff Wu with the HVMN Podcast. I hope everyone is safe and sound. Most of America being shut down, locked down. I know in the Bay Area, it's been about a week. And then for all of California states in the last three, four days now. So hopefully everyone's staying safe, staying healthy. The show does continue on over in HVMN and let's keep our brains and minds stimulated here. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined by Vanessa Du. She is co-founder of Health Aid Kombucha, one of my favorite kombucha brands. Welcome to the program, Vanessa. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be on. How are you holding up? You know, it's a trying time, I think, for our nation, for our planet, um, but trying to remain positive and just being strong uh, personally, professionally, and you know, really just trying to do our part um, to you know, flatten the curve here. I think there's a number of challenges on the personal front as well as on the business front. I know that you're a fellow business owner, and I think you're probably seeing a lot of statistics where unemployment and, and all of that is... Uh, is going to be going up. So hopefully you're taking care of yourself, your family, as well as your, your employees. Yep, definitely trying to do all that. Yeah. Moving on to just broader topics away from the COVID-19. Kombucha really is something that I've just loved to drink just casually for fun. But on the health and nutrition side, it definitely sits in one of the emerging categories around probiotics, gut health. How did you get into kombucha? What is your journey with HealthAid? How did that begin? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, HealthAid and you know, my, my start with kombucha really started about eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, I would say. Uh, me and my best friend and her husband, we started this entrepreneur club of sorts because we were very unchallenged, unfulfilled with our corporate jobs at the time. And we wanted to create a business for ourselves, create a legacy 
create our imprint in, in this world in business. And we started this entrepreneur club where we brainstormed different business ideas. And it was within those clubs, those club meetings that we actually decided to start bottling and selling healthy kombucha. Um, but the journey really started a little bit before that, where in my early 20s, I was probably drinking a venti soy latte with, you know, however many pumps of syrup and just leading just not a healthy life. And I felt that I could make healthier choices. And that's when I really started um, replacing those types of drinks with kombucha. Um, my partner in business, Dinah, she had been a nutritionist and so she knew how to make kombucha. And so I felt for me that you know it was a, a great replacement for those high sugary beverages that really weren't serving me. And overall, I felt great from it. Um, and as I learned more about kombucha and just overall fermented foods, you know, being Chinese, fermented foods is deeply rooted in our culture. So it really did make sense from what I was already eating uh, from my heritage just to embed this in my day to day. So I can say there is a health component. There is also this entrepreneurial component where we saw this opportunity to bring a high quality premium kombucha to the market. And that's ultimately when we started selling Health Aid was March 2012, and we decided to bring this to the farmer's market. So that's a little bit about my journey. It was a blend of both entrepreneurial pursuits and also health-related efforts to really be a little bit better to myself and you know, be a little bit better to my gut. I think most people are probably aware of what kombucha is, but for folks who have been under a rock over the last couple of years, what is kombucha exactly? How is it produced? You, meant, you mentioned a fermentation process. There's sometimes some alcohol and some fizziness in typical kombuchas. Can we just define the basics of kombucha brewing here? Kombucha at its heart is uh, fermented tea. So it's rich in probiotics and healthy acids. So all those good bacteria, probiotics, and all the healthy acids are really good to help introduce all the necessary um, I guess you could say goodness for your gut to help defend yourself against you know day to day the bad bacteria, the pathogens that may be entering your system. So overall, kombucha is really good because of probiotics and healthy acids. And you know how we brew is we brew the old-fashioned way. So we utilize real ingredients. You need simple ingredients just to make kombucha: water, sugar, tea, and the VIP ingredient, which is our SCOBY. It stands for symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So it's essentially this uh, culture that's chock full of all the good stuff that we are able to ferment the tea with. And it's within that primary fermentation phase that ultimately the yeast is eating the sugar, converting the sugar to probiotics, CO2, alcohol. At the same time, you have a symbiotic relationship where the bacteria is eating the alcohol, uh, converting it to healthy acids. So you have a very beautiful kind of relationship within this fermentation process. At the end of that, we add our fresh pressed juice. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you have a bubbly beverage that is good for you, better for you than what's out there currently. Um, that's low in sugar, um, high in probiotics. And ultimately, it's replenishing the gut with all the good stuff that you need to take on the day. 100%. And the, and the SCOBY, that's kind of the goopy stuff that you might see in, in some of the kombuchas out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's that uh, little uh, kombucha oyster, if you will, that sometimes pops up in some of those bottles. Um, so 
it's all the good stuff, but some people have their own preference whether or not they like it. I want to rewind back to early 2010. So I don't remember the first time I encountered kombucha, but I remember it definitely being a, a kind of an acquired taste. I'm just wondering back in the early days when kombucha probably was not a, a known name, what was the reception like? What was it like at those initial moments, you know, hustling at, at farmer's markets? Can you walk us through those early, early days? Yeah, wow. Um, what's interesting is today, actually 50% of people between the ages of 10, 20 to 30 don't even know what kombucha is still. And so you can only imagine what it was like you know, circa uh, eight years ago, right? In 2012, when we started in the farmer's market. So when we started, I mean, I can say even before we had a product out in market, I told my parents what I was going to be doing is we're starting a business and we're making kombucha. And the immediate response from my parents, my family and my friends was, wow, she's gone off the deep end. What is this type of you know, hippie drink and hippie lifestyle that she's fallen into. Um, they, it was just, people are unaware of what it was, what it was for. And when we started in the farmer's market, I remember it was March 25th, 2012, the first day at the farmer's market here in LA, which is fairly progressive. And even when we started talking to the customers that you know, were walking along the market and saying, would you like to try some kombucha? They said, kombu what? They had no idea what it was. Um, so we literally had to educate from the bottom up around what is kombucha? Where's, where does it get its roots from? What is it good for? How is healthy different? And so there was a lot of just hand-to-hand -hand sampling, education. Um, and you know, I'm really proud we've been on that forefront of that ever since 2012. But you know, the early days, people may have heard about it. But it's, it, it seemed to be this mystical word that people really had no idea what it was. So the reactions of people when they heard about it was, I don't know if I want to try it. And we gradually were able to get them to sample it. And as people tried Health Aid, they loved it just with our full flavor, our effervescence, the, the fresh fruit. So I think that's where people really were hooked. But you know, getting them to that first sip was often tough. Yeah. I mean, was it challenging? Were sales initially slow? Or once you got over the activation energy of getting that first sip, people were like, I'm in, I want to drink this. That Those must have been some critical moments for you. Did you have specific memory or point where it's like, wow, this, this is really going to work? Yeah. So I would say in the first couple months, that was kind of our prime farmer's market period where we were hustling out there. Uh, we were you know, trying to get everyone to try it. Um, and we, I think it was a combination of our, you know, optimism, our hustle mentality, our you know, excitement about what we were creating, and it was infectious. And so getting people to try it really wasn't so much of a big deal. Um, but, you know, because every market that we went to in those first couple months, we were selling out weekend over weekend. Um, what was interesting was when we first started in grocery stores, which was 2014 um, here in Southern California. And that was really start, like that would tell, you know, could we make it out in retail when we're no longer just, you know, calling a customer over to sample it and directly selling to them. And I really think it was that first two years in grocery stores, 2014 and 2015, where we were able to not just 
see how our product, not that, not that we were able to see how well it did, but we were able to really connect to consumers based on our message as a brand, our product that you know, we had a strong loyalty for. Um, and it was really awesome to see those first two years kind of lay a strong foundation for us where we were like, okay, I think we have something here. It's just a matter of how we're able to scale this message out to more people. I'm just thinking from a science and probiotics perspective, because it seemed that whether it was good timing or you guys were ahead of the curve, but I would say over the last, I would say five, 10 years within the nutrition physiology world, there's been a lot of active research into gut health and probiotics. Was that something on your radar as you're building out HealthAid or was that just a happy coincidence? Are you guys interested in doing research uh, on either kombucha itself or probiotics generally as a space? Yeah. So when we started, it wasn't, um, when we started our entrepreneur club and we were looking at the different types of businesses that we could get into, uh, it wasn't so much the gut health aspect that we were really focused on. We were focused on what's the opportunity in the market? What are people uh, wanting? What are they craving? What are they looking for? What's the, what's the pain in the marketplace right now? And overall, we've, we wanted to do something positive for the community and we wanted to do something that left a positive impact on, on the people who consumed our products. Um, and so from there, it really fell in line that healthy kombucha could work out in that way. And it really fell in line with kind of that better for you trend, gut health trend. We didn't plan it that we were going to make kombucha because of a gut health trend. We wanted to do something that fulfilled an opportunity in the marketplace, a pain, and for us, that was creating the best tasting, highest quality kombucha one could buy. Um, as we think about... Let's sort of juxtapose against, I guess, like sodas that were like... Yes. With like 50 grams of basically a sugar bomb or... Yes, exactly. And, but you still had that effervescent kind of bubbly texture. So you're getting a yes. little... So kind of the best of both worlds, you get that bubbly, but you don't have that sugar bomb. Yeah, exactly. You know, as millennials really started to understand what they're putting into their bodies and, you know, overall people just wanting something better for them as opposed to their sugary soft drink. It was, you know, how can I replace this? And kombucha really kind of hit those parameters. And for us, we understand a huge opportunity in this space on an even bigger scale now where we can start to message this on a bigger platform where people don't have to um, ingest these high sugary beverages. They still want that effervescence. They still want to feel like they are drinking something delicious, something that's chuggable. And you know, kombucha tastes delicious. It has those bubbles and it's good for you. So why don't we start to go up against um, carbonated soft drink soda a little bit more? So it really kind of fell in line with that trend, but we didn't do it because of that trend. Um, and as we think about you know, how we want to be able to reach the mainstream even more um, and kind of what you mentioned around the future and education, you know, it's interesting because there is such a beautiful science to all of this. But at the same time, if we want to take this on a bigger platform, if we want to scale this to more people within the mainstream, not just the early adopters and the people who are very um, health conscious, you also want to make this digestible, no pun intended, uh, but you know, simple layman's terms around why they should be drinking it, um, having the you know, right credibility behind it. But having something that's familiar, having verbiage that they can understand, something that makes them feel good 
and they feel good about drinking, but um, something that doesn't look too clinical at the same time. So for us, it's just balancing just right what that is so that we're still able to take this to the mainstream um, and still message appropriately from the you know, scientific side on why this is good, but not make it all clinical. And that's the purpose of it. I think, I think it's spot on in terms of the challenge of marketing something with potential health or benefits claims, right? Where it's like, okay, you can run clinical studies and do randomized controlled trials, but the average person is just not going to have the time or interest to, to really care and dive deep into the literature. So what's that balance there? But I know for our audience, I would say that our audience does seem to want to dive a little bit deeper on the science, on the rigor here. And I'm curious in terms of how you think about healthy. Do you think about healthy in terms of kombucha being directly better than something that's terrible like soda, which I think is uncontroversially bad for you? Or do you think that kombucha is actually healthful, more uh, beneficial than a soda water or like a carbonated water that's non-sugary? Do you think that there's like an added benefit on the probiotics, the fermentation process in of itself? Yeah, 100%. I actually think both are you know, the schools of thought that we employ. So just at its heart and being a kombucha believer and really a kombucha purist, it is there are tangible benefits and gut health benefits to probiotics. Um, there's also healthy acids. There's probably tons of research out there supporting this, but nothing has really been come to light or brought to light in a way that um, allows kind of healthy acids and probiotics to really show how they interplay. But from a functional level, I, I definitely know that there's a benefit there. But at the same time, it's when you put your you know hat on in terms of how to bring it to an audience. You know, it's really good that you have you know amazing product, but at the end of the day, if you don't show it in relation to something else or what this opportunity can be or really bring it down to their level. So i.e., what does this look like versus a soda? You know, they're not going to know relative to what they should be doing. Um, so I think it's really important for us uh, and really any other brand owner to make the product be able to stand on its own, which we can. And that's what Healthy Kombucha is and has done. But at the same time, being able to not just benchmark, but really um, have a contrast, a foil, if you will, to what you're trying to do out there that allows kind of the, the benefits and the features come to light even more. Um, and for us, we don't have to, we never want to take the stance of, um, yeah, I guess you could say um, downplaying or really upplaying some of the competitors in this case, you know, CSD, you know, their, their downfalls. But at the same time, we can always highlight why we are so good. Um, I think consumers will really understand that it's a, You'll feel good bubbly beverage at the end of the day. Um, and that's what we're trying to evoke out there against soda. Yeah. How do you see the broader kombucha market playing out? Now you see a couple, I'd say like bigger brands out there. And sp speaking with friends who are involved in the drinks business, they're starting to become like craft kombucha brands. Do you see this being like beer, wine, where you just have mega brands out there and then craft brands. How do you, how do you see this kind of ultimately playing out? What are the 
biggest cases, expected cases, kind of like worst cases that you're kind of mapping out as you're thinking about the broader market? It's interesting because the kombucha category today is about a billion dollars to date, much smaller than beer or wine. But as we think about the opportunity ahead, when we think about you know, all of those soda drinkers who aren't wanting to drink soda anymore, how do we start to talk to them? The potential for the category could be so much broader. Um, and to your point around you know, seeing this proliferation of these craft breweries within kombucha, yeah, we've seen that over the last you know, five years or so, where you know, there were probably a handful of companies you could count um, on one or two hands about eight years ago. But now I believe there's over 150 brands in the U.S., a lot of them very regional. Um, and so we've already started to see this kind of shake out in the category of these top national brands. The health aid is certainly driving the growth of the category. Not only are we the fastest growing brand, we're the highest dollar contributor to the category. So health aid is really defining kind of the direction and you know, where kombucha is going. Uh, but I also think it's great to see these regional brewers that take shape and see how, are they, how they are able to embed their local flair into this world of craft kombucha. But I think as time moves forward, you'll start to see the top national brands really start to have a platform. And you know, if we do it right, we're able to really expand the category on a much larger level, particularly looking at those drinkers who are leaving CSD and soda in droves. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And also potentially even taking market share from something like beer, where my understanding with the beer market is that beer sales have been flat, if not shrinking. The only category that's like growing is with craft beer. And it's a very similar production process as kombucha with beer, right? They're both relate to some sort of fermentation. Maybe some of the fermentation capacity goes more towards something like kombucha rather than alcohol, which could be an interesting development. Yeah, yeah, definitely some uh, parallels there. In terms of how you think about your audience, typically I would say our listeners are folks that are interested in optimizing performance, biohackers, if you will, folks that are elite athletes, endurance athletes. And then I would say another third of our audience are folks that have specific health issues, whether relating to metabolic syndrome, high insulin resistance, et cetera. Did you see any initial seed that you that, that kombucha really resonated with? With HVMN, we really started off with folks that were interested in enhancing cognitive performance and that probably expanded into intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. I would say that kombucha is fairly keto compli compliant in the sense that it's oftentimes the non-sweetened or non-fruit juice added kombuchas have very low sugar or a very low net carbohydrate. Did you think about your community in, in that way or is it very much kind of like, hey, we are making something yummy, something yummy applies to everyone? Like, how do you think about engaging your initial community, your initial audience? Yeah. So when we first started, um, it was very much more of the latter, I would say. And when I say the latter, it was very much, let's put the best tasting, highest quality kombucha we could out there. So uh, tasted delicious. Everyone wants to try it. Once they tried it, they could, they would want to come back time and time again. So at the heart of it, we wanted to create a product that anyone could really partake in and enjoy. And we didn't think of it more so from the functional aspect on where this would fit. But I will say those first couple of years when we were starting out here in Los Angeles, we were delivering, self-delivering to over 250 accounts. And they ranged from CrossFit studios, yoga studios, Pilates, 
um, very much were in line with nutritionist recommendations. We're also in independent grocery. So as we started, what we didn't know then is that we kind of learned what our consumer was really trying to use healthy kombucha for. And so, yes, the foundation was for us, we were going to create a great product, tasted delicious and was good for you. But as we started to understand where this started to fit in consumers' lifestyles, there was a bit of, you know, very much the Whole30 ketogenic diet. I remember when I met my now husband, he, uh, you know, was drinking, he started drinking healthy kombucha when he met me, but it felt very much in line with his CrossFit lifestyle at the time. And so in terms of, you know, for us, learning that was great just from the occasion type um, understanding with our consumer. And you know, what we see now is it very much falls in with those looking for something better for them, for the betterment of their diet, um, and not so much in a clinical way, um, following a nutrition's recommendation. And we, we primarily would want to stay out of that, uh, because at the heart of it, it's delicious, makes you feel good. And a lot of people can partake in this. But at the same time, it does fall within a lot of diets, a lot of um, lifestyles, um, and really is a great replacement for something high sugary that people are indulging in, and they want to take out of their life. So we want to be able to be that for those people who need that. Yeah, it makes sense for me. Again, like a lot of our audience are on a low carb ketogenic diet. And I think one of the hard things is when you're trying to do a workout, uh, having a little bit of that carbohydrate pump right before is, is helpful. And something like uh, kombucha is kind of a nice balance where you get some yummy hydration and you have a little bit of carbohydrate without taking like a Gatorade, another kind of sugar bomb. It's like kind of a nice balance. So I could definitely can see in the CrossFit community, which overlaps quite heavily with the low carb community being an early adopter there. I, I kind of want to pivot on, on the business side, obviously eight plus years in, did you expect to make that happen when you were in 2012? I mean, I think all of us, especially, you know, young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that are just starting off. I think everyone thinks that they're going to be successful. I, maybe you, you haven't hit what you call success yet, but I would say a lot of people look up to health aid as a success. Was this the plan? Like, did everything just work out for you? Yeah. You know, I like to say it was a, wow, we just woke up and it just happened to us. And now we're here with a you know, thriving company, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all roses, but I can say, you know, when we started, you know, if there's anything about me and my co-founders, it's that we have this undying optimism for what could be, um, and an intense level of just hustle, um, to make it happen. And, uh, you know, if the doors close, we'll find the window to go through. So at least for us, when we decided we wanted to start a business, when we decided to quit our jobs to start Health Aid Kombucha, it, it wasn't hard to make that decision, but at the same time, it was where there was a fire under our butts to make something happen because we wanted it so badly. We wanted to create a business so badly. And for us, we could imagine what success looked like, but never in a million years did we think the journey that we've been on um, would be just that. And you know, I can speak to many of the lows that we've had in building it. Also, very many highs as we've been able to build it. And I can say that you know, coming out you know, where we are today, we have an awesome team of over 250 people. We are leading the growth in kombucha. We have an amazing product, an amazing team, um, an amazing brand. 
And I really think it's because we've stayed focused in that which we're trying to do um, has has led to our growth. But I, I think we still have so much more ahead of us. And that's the beautiful challenge that we have. Um, and so for me, the rest is not there yet because we still have so much more to accomplish. And I, I just can't say that we're successful just yet, but I'm very proud of what we've been able to build amidst the uh, highs and lows of the last eight years. Yeah. Two things stuck out in terms of focus and hustle. These are almost entrepreneurial axioms or almost tropes at this point. But I think almost everyone can read like an entrepreneurial blog post. Okay, you got to hustle, you got to be focused, got to stay focused on like one or two things. But I think what's been helpful for at least myself, and I know when I talk to young entrepreneurs, just really giving the anecdotes and the war stories that make that those those statements, those axioms really meaningful. Do you have good anecdotes around like a hustle story? What, what was that window hop that was like, wow, we're unstoppable. We're, we are resilient. Grit and resilience is probably you know our middle name, especially in those like first three to four years. So I remember one example distinctly. It was 2013, right after I quit my job. And, um, you know, we brew in two and a half gallon glass jars at the time. And we were, you know, bought, we decided to buy direct from that manufacturer and we were so cheap and we were trying to spend on, you know, save on money. And I remember we ordered like close to a thousand of these glass jars, but, uh, we didn't choose to, you know, order inside delivery. I had no idea what that meant to be quite honest. Um, and so when the truck arrived to our apartment, it was, you know, the, the truck driver couldn't deliver it because he wasn't paid to do so. So I had to unload, you know, a thousand glass jars individually <laughs> at the time by myself. And I thought, did I just quit my very well-paying job to, to do this? And I was like bruised. I was cut and bleeding. And I just remember that was, you know, a real epiphany. It's like, you know, can I physically persevere? And I did. We just... You know, we, we have to be smarter about things. Um, another example was, you know, we were self-delivering um, all throughout LA. And I remember one store owner in Venice, he was a very nice gentleman, but I remember him saying to me, he's like, you know, you're going to go up against the titans of industry, um, Pepsi and Coke, and they just have way more money than you do. Like, what are you going to do when you fail? And I remember, you know, these naysayers coming out from the woodwork here and there, and I just remember you know, having to have this positive mindset of just grit and to like keep on going to make sure that we're on the right path to like get us through. And I think that came through in another example where, you know, in our first kitchen that we were operating ourselves, you know, the health department came by and, you know, we at the time didn't know much about a health, health department plan check. And so, you know, he, she said at the time, we didn't fulfill one of the uh, parameters of health, ch health plan check. And so she was threatening to shut us down. And at that time, we that had must all be scary. It was super yeah, like, scary. Once like, regulators come in, you're like, oh, no, like, don't put me in. I don't want to be in trouble. Yeah, you don't want to be in trouble. You don't want to be liable. But at the same time, we had just quit our jobs um, to make this happen. And so you know, with the threat of being red tagged, with the thought of all these orders, might I add, we had our largest purchase order to date um, coming in that week. And so we were just in the midst of moving to our you know, new kitchen. And so it was really just a te uh, testament to our, I guess, resilience, both internally and just my mentally 
um, we were able to get through that time period okay. Um, but there's just so many more emotional lows that come with uh, the entrepreneurial life and startup life. And, you know, that, that really um, allowed us to be focused on the goal, really. And the goal is to be a leader in not just kombucha, but a leader in beverage and create a strong brand. And so all of our decisions were really focused on how do we do just that? How do we create the best tasting, highest quality kombucha? And so those were our truth north to help us get to where we are today. Yeah, 100%. One thing that kind of stuck out to me was the naysayer in Venice who's saying, oh, how are you going to compete with Coca-Cola and Pepsi? And being based in Silicon Valley and having started and sold a mobile app company, I remember kind of the trope with my friends who are doing kind of classic tech companies that, oh, what... How are you going to compete with a Google or a Facebook? And I think now being in the CPG space, yeah, how are you going to compete with a Kraft Heinz or a ABM Bev or a, some of these massive companies that have been around for 50, 100 years? And I'm, I'm curious how you think about it. But I think as you engage with these big brands and these big institutions, they're made up of people too. And oftentimes, they just care less about winning or fulfilling the mission or helping consumers than a startup or an entrepreneur because they just don't have skin in the game. It's not because they're like bad people or lazy, just that they don't really have, I would say that same level of, I guess, yeah, I think skin in the game is, is a good word for it to just like be like, hey, I'm going to unload and be and do manual labor and get bruised and quit a high paying job to do manual labor. Like it, it, that's a level of focus and dedication that a lot of these big companies just don't have. So I think when people ask that, and I think for new entrepreneurs who are just thinking about how they're going to compete, you're not competing against some giant monolith. You're competing against people. And oftentimes those people don't care as much as you do. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, that, I mean, that's why there are these emerging brands that are challenging these uh, strong strategics out in the, in the space with you know, new innovation. So I think there is this level of skin in the game, um, not just from a care level, but because you really have the passion to drive this or something else or whatever that dream is. And from a um, from the level of just innovation and just what we're trying to do, you can be so much more nimble than than any one of those companies, right? So it's this combination of flexibility. Um, being nimble and agile, but also it's this level of passion that as a founder, you have this intangible care and desire that you know, simply an employee who's leading a large company just does not have oftentimes. And so that oftentimes becomes the determinant of success and just pushing through. And it's that that really does set you up for growth or, or not growth or just you maintaining the status quo. Yep. And I think if folks really want to dive into the academic, academic literature around Innovator's Dilemma, Clay Christensen, who actually recently passed, he used to be a professor at Harvard Business School, has quite a couple books along that notion around typically these large strategics or these big companies just don't care or consider some of these niche categories, right? Because I can think 2012, I'm sure like the market for kombucha is probably like 5 million, 10 million. I, I don't know, something like reasonably small. PepsiCo is not going to roll over the bed for a $5 million market. Fast forward five, eight years, it's a billion dollar market. Now they're having to start to pay attention, but they're eight years slow. So that's just that cycle of innovation. So for young entrepreneurs out there who are listening, like don't be afraid to start. But I would say that 
you have to be smart in selecting the market, right? Yeah. With the kombucha market, you guys picked a space that was growing and early where you could move fast and not get smashed by incumbents. I wouldn't recommend starting a search engine, for example, right? right? Like you probably wouldn't recommend starting something that's commodity today without a special angle, a special edge. Yes. Passion matters, but you still got to be smart in where you put that passion in. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, part of our entrepreneurial club too is, you know, we, we didn't talk about all the stuff that we left on the you know, living room floor in terms of ideas. And, you know, we looked at many different types of companies, whether it's like a, many different apps, right. But then you're just a me too app at the end of the day uh, to fulfill a certain type of uh, need, but um, that wasn't the right product market fit. And at the end of the day, we found the feasibility of that particular product or business just not in line with the ability to grow and scale because there are those competitors out there and we just simply didn't either have the funds or the you know understanding or go-to-market strategy to think how do we start to tackle some of these big guys down without the right infrastructure. That's why we pivoted to Kombucha. <laughs> is there an idea left on the living room floor for you like, hey, this is still a good idea. If Health Aid wasn't, you know, crushing it, this is something that is a freebie idea out there that someone should run and run with. So, I mean, it still has to do with health aid, but I will say this. So one of the little known stories around how we started health aid is you know, we, we started making kombucha, yes, because there's an opportunity in the market. Um, but also we anecdotally thought it could be good for hair loss. So we started brewing kombucha to also see the effects of the SCOBY on hair loss. And so we, on our, you know, we weren't clinicians, but we were trying to understand, did it slow hair loss? Did it regenerate hair? Um, needless to say, we did not get that product off the ground or that project off the ground. We're not clinicians with the full scale to run a placebo controlled trial here, but I still have high hopes that there's something um, around the hair loss game. Um, and there's a couple other ideas that we've had actually that a lot of people have actually come to market with. One was, um, you know, if you're in LA or any major city, just having like an Uber, uh, Uber helicopter going from like downtown to Santa Monica, um, just because that 10 freeway is no one's friend. So how do we start this service? Um, someone did actually start it. <laughs> I don't know if it's, you know, gaining in scale, but it's definitely started in the last two years. So there's some stuff that could still have a lifeline to That's it. That's pretty funny. Well, probably not a lot of traffic right now. So not a good time to launch a helicopter Uber business. Yes, that's <laughs> true. It's green everywhere on GPS. Pivoting to your personal optimization, obviously you're a busy woman. How do you think about optimizing your own work schedule? Any best practices, tips um, that you've come across as, as you scale the business? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as days, years go on, you don't, you'll get less work. In fact, you get more of it, right? And you only have more personal obligations. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I've been able to you know, really have a lot of friends and family around me in Los Angeles. So you have this, um, and also self-care is such an important piece, right? So I, I view this as more of a, a practice more than a one and done. Um, so you know, a couple of things that I put into place just to make my headspace a little bit clearer. Um, so one is I've actually taken email notifications off of my phone. So I'm not you know, constantly looking at my phone to see what, it, what has come in every second. 
Um, and that's really helped me be more present, both with my friends and family, uh, and just be a little less anxious in that way. Um, second is, you know, delegation of work is always interesting, but also kind of being okay to say no to things is important. And so I learned that probably year three, four of the business, but it's a constant practice in that way because you may always want to take on more, but you can't really feasibly do more. So you need to rely on your team, what kind of you know, empowerment looks like in order to kind of push work through the system. Um, so that's been an important thing. And you know, I've had an executive coach uh, for the last six years, and that person's really helped me you know, talk through business issues talk through kind of employment issues, employee issues, but also talk through my own personal headspace and kind of walking through my schedule, my priorities, are my activities in line with my overall goals? And, you know, that's really been helpful for me. Um, and day to day, you know, I wake up and, you know, I'll putz around the apartment and, you know, I, I tend to do little power poses just to give me, give me my extra je ne sais quoi, um, to take on the day. So that's kind of given me, given me a little oomph recently. Yeah. I think a lot of your best practices make a lot of sense. I think when you're just starting off, you got to just take every single opportunity and just essentially hustle and, and, and grab every single lead. But at a certain point, it's very easy to be just completely reactive and overwhelmed. And it sounds like a lot of your best practice around turning off email notifications. It lets you just be a little bit more proactive rather than passive and reactive. And I think that's just generally good to go from, you know, just having agency, like running your life rather than having your life and your infrastructure run you, which is, is a kind of a good reminder of all of us. I think, especially now, it's very easy to be overwhelmed. So I think taking care of yourself with a good mental space seems to be especially important when a lot of people's routines are being disrupted necessarily we're going to have to be a lot more reactive than we want to be but i think thinking about how to just try to get to a proactive stance as quickly as possible seems to be a good guidance at this point yeah i mean i don't know about you or those who work from home but you know over the last week kind of transitioning to this fully working from home status is you know very quickly you're you can work kind of like 12 hours without stopping, without eating. And it's been, um, if you're not cognizant about it, you can have that done to your schedule will run you. And so I've had to really think about that as I you know, came into this week too, of working from home. And so it's been a, an interesting pivot to see how it's more of a proactive management versus just you know, having this done to me. Yeah. I think a lot of my team members are feeling a little bit guilty of not being productive. I'm like, hey, look, I'm not super productive right now either. I think for our listeners out there, give yourself a little bit of patience and, and understanding that it is a crazy time. Like, it's okay that you're probably not super productive because, yeah, stay safe, like stock up on food and, and necessities, you know, all, all the basic requirements. Getting some sort of structure and routine as quickly as possible is, is sensible. And I think I'm kind of getting a hang of it with making sure I'm installing some exercise time, some some breaks, making sure eating. I think those are, are, are quite sensible. Yeah, super important to sanity. Kind of wrapping up your entrepreneurial journey here. I mean, what would you say is the kind of like the biggest lessons or takeaways here? Maybe I'll give some of my thoughts here to, to put you in a mind space here. But I think for me, when people ask me about that, I think w when people see me or have known me when I was, you know, 
younger and early in my business career with now it's it i think resilience is a good word but just like a toughness or or a zenness i think that with any business or any new venture there's a lot of stress a lot of ups and downs and i can see why a lot of people self-medicate with partying alcohol or just like being super stressed out and i think and, and people can succeed in that way right like it's not to say that there aren't people that make a lot of money who kind of self-medicate with substances or extreme activities. But I would say that I've also seen like a big group of friends who've become what I say, like Jedi masters or like Zen monks. They're just kind of very calm. You don't get really get phased. And I kind of seen myself evolve along that way. Have you seen your personality or your resilience change or and what would you describe as the biggest personal change as you evolved in your business career? Mm. I think there has been two things, actually. One is, um, you know, there was always this mental toughness around me just kind of going through life. But it was always more of a, you know, because I want to do something the opposite of what my parents wanted me to do. Um, and so building the business, um, it's more about this idea of... Um, being able to not prove it to someone else, but being able to prove it to myself rather than you, know, because I think I'm trying to do it either in approval or in dissidence of someone else. And so that really caused me to look at it, having a strong sense of myself, self-awareness, accepting myself. And it, it is a very long journey to get there. Um, you know, more specifically, I guess I should say is, you know, growing up an Asian American female and going into this food and beverage entrepreneur CPG space, there's not a lot of people who look like me. There's not a lot of people who necessarily have the background of me or who see my perspective. And so being able to build this you know, toughness and not, not feeling like I have to prove myself to anyone else except for myself is something that I've really been able to hone in and focus in over the years. I think the younger me, like the high school me, uh, was always trying to you know, fit in with my um, counterparts in a very homogenous society. It was always trying to, uh, I was always trying to uh, find security in something else besides myself. And so I would say that for me, the hallmark of building health aid hallmark of my late tw late 20s and now my early 30s has really just been being really secure in who I am, my perspective, um, how I've been raised, and ultimately what I'm trying to prove and be proud of for myself. And, and that's not, maybe it's easier said than done, but I can say that's been a whole journey for, for me. Um, and then I would say second is in this business along the lines of, you know, being very passionate about what, what we're doing and what I'm building, it, you have a tendency to, to be totally sucked in and enveloped into this entrepreneurial journey. Um, so I would say over you know, the last couple of years, primarily, I've been able to practice a little bit of more healthy detachment, if you will, where you know, my self-worth isn't dependent upon the highs and lows of the business. Um, and so that too has been a journey of itself where you know I, I i in the beginning i really thought my identity was built upon health aid 
but that's not it at all. It's, you know, my identity was able to help, you know, paint and curate health aid. That, that's a very different thinking. So I've had to get into this mindset of healthy detachment where it's not all or nothing for the business and therefore it affects my mindset. Um, so I would say those two things is just being really strong in my own, in my own skin and being able to practice detachment um, so that you still feel very much in the game and you have skin in the game, but you don't let it define who you are because that's not the definition of, of me. Basically. Yeah, well said. I, it kind of reminds just me reflecting on it. It's almost that I think people want to use the vehicle of a business or a startup to create an entity for themselves, but ultimately that's just the vehicle to just ultimately be confident in yourself. So it kind of goes full circle where I guess one could just directly work on yourself, but oftentimes it's easier to build that confidence and the self-awareness through a project, whether that's a business, community service, art, to then better understand themselves and get confidence in themselves. But I think ultimately, I think you would agree that the most important thing is, is being confident in yourself. And oftentimes an external project is a really good tool to get, your, get yourself there. You know, ultimately, you're in a, I'm in a better mind space for the business and for myself so that I can be better overall for where the business needs to go. Um, and so it just makes, otherwise, it's just because you are guiding it as a founder, it just doesn't serve you or the business well if you're not in that good mind space. 100%. You mentioned being identity as an Asian American woman, being an entrepreneur, not having a lot of role models. And you know, the initial context that brought us and connected us was through uh, Gold House, which is an organization that supports Asian American founders and businesses. I'm curious to hear, you know, how you plugged into that community. Because I think just for myself, I never really was gravitated towards Asian American stuff. I've always, whether wanting to just fit in or be part of the mainstream, I've always kind of thought of myself as American first and foremost, and there's attributes that I didn't choose or not choose. It's just like I was born a man. Uh, my parents came from China, Asia. Um, these weren't choices, but like I think what you can choose is you know what your nationality is, where you're a citizen. You know, kind of can choose like where you want to live and and what values you you, you ascribe to and 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 believe are are good. As I've personally grown and evolved. It's something that I've come kind of come full circle towards in the sense that even if this is not a choice that I make, like I don't, I didn't choose to be Asian American, people will kind of automatically bucket me into that category, whether it's a choice or not a choice of my own. I think it's important to have representation like uh, the show Asian Americans and just Americans and people in general that you can kind of create your own destiny and there are people that might look like them, might have some cultural values similar to them that can make it or do interesting things. So that's kind of like why I kind of plugged back into the gold house and, and, and wanted to get involved. Here's a hear about your journey and your interest in getting involved in an Asian American community or organization. Yeah. So I would say I uh, met Bing and the Gold House team about uh, maybe a year ago now. And it was with this idea that, you know, in this journey of health aid over the last seven years at the time, it was, I was so focused on growing and building and really focused on the business. Um, but as I started to kind of poke my head out there and just think like, wow, there's so few 
Asian American entrepreneurs, there's so few Asian American female entrepreneurs. I wonder where my tribe is at here. And so um, I started uh, working with different Asian American groups. And at the heart of it, I just want to be able to give back and be able to mentor and be part of a community uh, that helped Asian other Asian Americans kind of get their start too. And so in that kind of interest, I was introduced to Bing and met met those at Gold House, and I'm really happy to be a part of it. I guess I would say it, you know, this idea of being Asian American, it, it's been a constant conflict, I would say, for me over you know my from being an adolescent to just even recently, to be quite honest. I remember growing up and I grew up in a very homogenous society. Um, I think I was the only Asian person in my school. And so for uh, in a suburb of Los Angeles, so Encino, California, and so very few Asian people that lived there, even fewer that were at my school. And um, I just remember never feeling different until I had a really... Um, a, a harsh racist event actually happened to me. I remember I brought you know, the food that my mom cooked for me to school. It was all the smells of the Chinese food that you know me and you probably grew up on, um, but it wasn't normal. It wasn't a sandwich. It wasn't chicken tenders. It wasn't normal, so to speak. And I remember someone calling me a racial slur and it was at that moment that I was, you know, felt so embarrassed and ashamed of who I was. And I, you know, for, I would say the greater part of 15, 15 to 20 years after that, I very much wanted to blend in. I very much wanted to just be part of this you know, greater pop culture that to me didn't really include Asian American in it. And so, you know, as I got into college, though, it was an awakening. Wow, there's so many people that look like me out here. Um, and as I started to meet different people, it was a great community to just meet and be a part of. But I, all, I always felt like I was straddling two worlds a little bit, um, the white world and the Asian world. And it wasn't until over the last, I would say, thought, building healthy, really, the five to 10 years where I've been able to come into my own skin a little bit become a lot stronger in who I am and understand that there's this beauty in our culture, um, both with the Asian roots and being Asian American. And so because of that, I really wanted to start to meet other people in the community, meet other entrepreneurs. Um, I will say that you know, being an Asian American female and building a company, there's few of us out there. So I was just curious, hey, are there people who could be a sounding board for me? That was really the start of it. And then um, that kind of you know, gradually got me more involved into you know, Gold House and other Asian American groups where I'm really proud of what our community has been able to do and will continue to do. And I really am excited to be a part of that and give back. 100%. And I think conversations like these, I would say, is relatively rare in the mainstream. You, you have a broader awareness of the black American experience and other minority American experiences. And I don't think it's a comparison or, or anything, but I think it's a relatively rare discussion around what an Asian American experience is. The, the Asian American story, I think is just starting to become discussed in the mainstream. I think you have uh, Eddie Huang's TV show, Fresh Off the Boat, that 
we're starting to have that discussion in the mainstream. I think you have Crazy Rich Asians, which is kind of showing more Asian faces in pop culture. So I'm fairly optimistic that the world is becoming more multicultural, more more diverse. And I just want to reflect on your experience growing up. I just felt kind of lucky because in my town, I grew up in a town called Palos Verdes. And there was like my high school had like 40% Asians. So I just never really felt that out of norm, which might have kind of led to my experiences and, and my current opinions. But, but I, I think all of us, and I, I would hope for the next generations that no one really feels alone or ostracized, right? I think that would be the ideal outcome where, again, like my sense is that people should be able to choose the attributes that matter to them. Sometimes you can't choose. And I think the things that you can't choose, we should try to eliminate discrimination or preference away from those attributes and focus on the attributes that we can control. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very apropos um, topic, I think, now, especially when there may be increased levels of um, discrimination amidst some of the COVID-19 feelings out there. Right. And so now more than any other time, I think it's important to think about what we can positively affect as a community, as as people helping other communities and if any time it's now to come together to really become better for the planet. Um, I know as cheesy as that sounds, but you know, being able to focus on not just the uniqueness of each of us, but also the beauty that w- is within that and standing together in that and standing stronger is um, really important, especially, especially right now. Yeah. People that are beating up or bullying Asians, stop that. That's, that's ridiculous. I, I, I've been seeing, been following. There was a New York Times article that re, that just published this morning, and it's just sad to see some of the videos out there where people are just chasing down, beating up like Asian grandmas on like New York subways, and it's just like, damn, that's sad. I I know it's terrible, it's super sad, especially in a time where there is already panic and um, this this uh, level of anxiety out there that just definitely doesn't help the situation for anyone. Hundred percent. Any specific thoughts or advice for Asian Americans, or whether in entrepreneurship or in this time that you have as you're plugging in and and getting involved in Asian American groups? Yeah, I would say it's um, well, staying staying open. I would say, and and that maybe seem seems vague, but I I noticed that um, you know, once you're in you know this whatever um, Asian American group you may be in. Um, there's so many more other communities out there too, wanting kind of advice or insights. And it's just more about this community of help and outreach and utilizing the community to lift us all up. So I would say it's just staying open to what those opportunities could be because there's so many of us that's wanting to come together. Um, and I think it's just a matter of doing just that, coming together. And I guess it would be um, supporting one one another. I think a great avenue to do so is um, what Gold House has in place and what's coming up, which is the gold rush with food and beverage companies. So, you know, support of other Asian American businesses and helping collaborate with each other is a huge piece of us rising up together. So I would say, you know, check out goldhouse.org, 
for that gold rush coming through. Um, but it's all about support, whether it's you know, female entrepreneurship, Asian American entrepreneurship, um, any other groups out there. It's it's all about being able to collaborate. Hundred percent. Yeah, and I know that Health Aid is a part of that gold rush, and over at HVMN, we're also part of that. Uh, promotion event as well. So I believe the dates for that Gold Rush event are March 27th to the 31st. So check out goldhouse.org slash market to get tuned in. I think there's upwards of 20, 30 other really cool food and beverage companies that are part of that, uh, the, the, the Gold House Gold Rush event as well. So do check that out. So as we wrap up here, how do people follow along? Are you active on social? You know, what's what's the best way to keep in touch and, and stay tuned to all the things happening in the world of health aid and also the world of Vanessa? Yeah, so we are very active on Instagram. Check us out at Health Aid A D E. And if you want to check out uh, my journey, I'm uh, expecting a baby boy in June. I just recently got married. Congratulations. And me and my husband are in escrow in a new house. So all the life events that you could have. Um, if you want to check me out on Instagram, it's V underscore D-E-W on, on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I know it's a busy time for you and in, in, in the world. So again, thank you for taking the time to share your experience, your insight and story. And hopefully we get to actually hang out and meet up in person. Because I know that, I, I believe this week, we're all supposed to hang, be hanging out in New York for the gold house uh event but obviously all shut down so we'll have to postpone that and make that happen like soon yes i know can't wait for the live meeting uh much much anticipation all right take care thanks have a good one if you're interested to learn more about hvmn visit www.hvmn.com pod thank you for tuning in